Hi friends, this is Will Dyer, the pastor here at the First Baptist Church of Augusta. Welcome to our podcast. I hope the message that you are about to hear will give you some joy in your day. But more than that, I hope that this message will connect you to Jesus. The mission of our church is to connect people to Jesus Christ in a community of faith. And it is my greatest hope that the message you are about to hear will better connect you with Jesus and His way in the world. Hi friends, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 4. And in just a moment, I want to read to you verses 1 through 12. We're beginning a new series this week that's going to carry us out for the next six weeks. Restoring Hope, where we are looking at how God, through His Son Jesus, can restore us and create new life in this moment in which we live. And as we always do, I want to begin by reading from the story of God and God's people. So follow along with me as I read to us now from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. As they were speaking to the people, they were Peter and John. As they were speaking to the people, along came the priests, the chief of the temple police, and the Sadducees. They were thoroughly annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming that the resurrection of the dead had begun to happen in Jesus. They seized them and put them under guard until the next day, since it was already evening. But a large number of the people who heard the message believed it, and the number of men grew to 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and the scribes gathered in Jerusalem, along with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. They stood them in the midst. How did you do this? They asked them. What power did you use? What name did you invoke? Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Rulers of the people and elders, he said, if the question we're being asked today is about a good deed done for a sick man, and whose power it was that rescued him, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man stands before you fit and well because of the name of Jesus, the Messiah, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. He is the stone which you builders rejected, but which has become the head cornerstone. Rescue won't come from anybody else. There is no other name given under heaven and among humans by which we must be rescued. It's been interesting. Over the past month or so, I've begun to notice a trend. This past weekend, Sarah and I went to Charleston. And Charleston, friends, it was overflowing with people. We are beginning to emerge back into some semblance of normalcy. It's not just in Charleston, but again, over the past couple of months, what I've noticed is that even in our worship services and around our city in Augusta, people are beginning to feel more comfortable coming back out. We are emerging, hopefully, hopefully, on the backside of this pandemic. I think most of us are of the opinion that maybe we are beginning to see some light at the end of this tunnel. And here at our church, and not just our church, but churches all around the country and around the world, one of the questions that we have begun to ask very seriously is, what does it look like to do church after a pandemic? 
not only are we asking that question, but we're coupling that with another question as well. Because I talked to you a little bit a few weeks ago about this new, uh, this new survey that had been done by the Pew Research Group. And I'm not going to go into a number of the details, but suffice it to say that this Pew Research Group, their study came out about a month ago, and what it said is that for the first time in the history of America, religious participation is now a minority. 51% of Americans identify with no membership in religious organizations. They have no affiliation with the monotheistic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That's a startling statistic. And it's also like a pandemic has caused us as a church, and not just us, but all churches, to ask a question. What does it look like to do church in this new setting? And so I think this is something that we all need to focus on, that we all need to give attention to. And the question is this, that we've been asking, and I think it's good for all of us to pause and ask this question. What does it look like to be the church in a post-pandemic, post-Christian setting? What does it look like for us to be the church in a post-pandemic, post-Christian setting? To go out and share this good news of Jesus Christ. To go out and make the world a better place right here and right now. Those are questions that we need to be asking. And the reality is there is no shortage of people out there willing to give you their opinions. There are books being written. There are studies being offered. And I've read a few of the books. As a matter of fact, I've got a couple of friends that are experts in digital ministry. And one thing that we are all aware of, that this digital expression of church, it's not going away. It's going to be here for the long haul. And so one day I'm meeting with my friend asking these questions. What does church look like moving forward? And my friend said to me, Will, I'm telling you right now, this new expression of church, it needs to be fidgetal. I looked at him and I said, buddy, that's not a word. And he said, no, it is fidgetal. It's a word because I made it one. It's a combination of digital and physical. So church moving forward is going to be fidgetal. I have to tell you, I think that's a ridiculous word, but I don't disagree with him. We do need to take seriously the reality that church is going to look different. Fidgetal. I got to tell you, that's stuck in my head so much so that for the past few weeks since I've had this conversation with him, I have been walking around singing, let's get fidgetal, fidgetal. Uh, you like that? <laughs> so, fidgetal. Is that what church is going to look like moving forward? Maybe it is on the backside of a pandemic. And, and while we certainly need to spend our time and our energy thinking about innovative ways to engage people with this good news of Jesus Christ, for me, and for us here at the First Baptist Church, as we begin to ask that question, what does church look like moving forward? Not buildings, but people. How do we engage in this gospel work? I want to fall back on some wisdom that I received and that most of you probably have as well. That in order to know where you are going, you have to know where you have been. In order to know where you're going, you have to know where you have been. Because our past shapes us and makes us who we are. 
Right? I am the son of a roofer. And my experience with blue-collar family life shapes who, who I have become and how I see the world. If you want to know where you're going, you have to know where you have been. And all of us would agree that that is true on an individual level, but also on a broad corporate level as an institution and as a people. If we want to know where we're going, we have to know where we have been. And here at the First Baptist Church, where we have been, well, we could begin by looking at 2019, pre-pandemic world. We, we could begin by looking at 1817, when uh, just a small handful of people gathered together here in Augusta and established the Baptist Praying Society of this city. And those would be good places to look. We could even go back to 1517 when Martin Luther posted those 95 theses, those 95 statements on the door of the church at Wittenberg, and he launched a revolution that came to be known as the Protestant Reformation because that has shaped us in who we've become. And that would be a good thing. In order to know where you're going, you have to know where you've been. But for us here in this moment, here at the First Baptist Church of Augusta, asking what does it look like to be the church in a post-pandemic, post-Christian world. I actually want us to go all the way back to our beginnings, to our origin story. And where we find that is, in fact, in the book of Acts. For those of you that aren't familiar, just real quick, the author Luke, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, he's the same person that wrote the book of Acts. And it is an early history of the church. It begins with the ascension of Jesus when Jesus goes and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And it ends with Paul, one of the earliest followers of Jesus in Rome, doing his work, sharing the gospel. And it's this early history of how the followers of Jesus in the beginning, when they were a minority, how did they go about doing their work? And that's what I want us to look at. And there's a reason why I want us to look at the book of Acts in particular. And it really is this, friends, because I believe that when you read the book of Acts, what you will find is that this early church, it looks very similar to the church in 21st century America. The early church in the book of Acts, it does. It looks strikingly similar to the church that we find ourselves in right here in 2021 in Western culture. Because just like us, those early Christians, they were living in a pluralistic world. And what I mean by that is, is there were thousands of different religious beliefs, and all of them were considered valid. They lived in a culture that was highly diverse ethnically. There was constant infighting. There were major social stratifications and differences between the rich and the poor. It's crazy, friends, when you look at the history, the world in which we live, it in fact very much resembles the world that the earliest Christians lived in. And so for us, we need to take a deep look at these first followers of Jesus as we ask the question, what does it look like for us to follow Jesus well moving forward? And so over the next six weeks, what we're going to do is we are going to look at six stories primarily from these first 10 chapters. And I want you to read the whole of the book of Acts over six weeks. It is this incredibly fascinating read. You will be captivated by it. So read the book of Acts. But the first 10 chapters in particular, 
It's before the church really went out outside of Jerusalem with any distance. The first 10 chapters are really about what does it look like to be the local church, to be the church in the place where we currently are. And I believe that's the question that we need to ask. And so that's what I want us to do. In order to know where we're going, we have to know where we've been. And we've been in a place now that resembles our earliest ancestors, the earliest followers of Jesus. What I read to you earlier this morning, it's from this early chapter 4 when the Jesus movement was just getting started and there are two disciples in particular, Peter and John two of Jesus' closest early followers, and they've encountered this resurrected Jesus, and they've had this experience, and now the moment comes when they go out into the world and they're proclaiming the good news. And the story that I read to you from chapter 4, it begins with all these religious leaders, the elite, the, the temple guards, the security system that was operating at the time. They, they see Peter and John preaching one day early in the temple. And so they show up and they just begin to listen. And, it's, and the story says that these religious leaders, they're getting annoyed. They're getting annoyed because Peter in particular is proclaiming that the resurrection of the dead has already begun to happen in and through Jesus. Now I want to pause for just a moment. Because there was this belief in Judaism that we carry forward in Christianity that the resurrection of the dead was not something that would uh, just signal the end of all time, but there would come a day in good Jewish thought during the time of Jesus, rooted in the book of Isaiah, the book of Daniel, and other Old Testament prophet stories, that there would come a day when God would raise up all of the righteous dead and God would restore and redeem and renew and recreate all things and the world would be made right. And for Jews, that would happen at the end, when all people would be resurrected. But the Jesus story tells a different way. The Jesus story, Peter and John and James and the others, what they began to teach is that that resurrection, that renewal, that restoration, that hope for all things, it had begun to happen because Jesus was resurrected. And He was the beginning of a whole new chapter of how God was working in the world. It was revolutionary then, and it's revolutionary now. And so these religious leaders hear what these guys are saying, and they have to put a stop to it quick. So they take Peter, and they take John, and they put him in prison. And early the next morning, they bring the two Christian followers of Jesus and they stand them up before the, this religious elite. And what they say is, okay, guys, we want to know. How did you do what you have done? Who has taught you these things that you are now teaching to everyone else? By what name are you doing the things that you have done? I want to stop for a moment because what they had done just a chapter earlier, just a the same day, was that they had taken a man who was lame and couldn't walk from the time of his birth, and they restored him, and they stood him up, and he could walk again, and he could be free again. And these religious leaders wanted to know, how are you doing these miraculous things? 
And in what is one of the most beautiful moments in the whole of the book of Acts, Peter, it tell, the story tells us, is filled with the Spirit. And he stands up before these religious leaders and he says to them, guys, if you want to know how it is that, that I have restored this man to health, you need to know that it is through Jesus this man, this Messiah from Nazareth that you crucified and God raised Him from the dead. It is through the name of Jesus that we are able to restore this man and make his life whole again. And then there is this remarkable moment when Peter looks at these religious leaders and he says to them in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven or on earth, by which men can be rescued. If you want to know how we have done what we have done, the answer is clear-cut and dry. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. They believed that it was through one name and one name alone that restoration could come, that wholeness could come, that redemption could come, and it was through the name of Jesus. Now I want to pause for just a moment, because for some of us, what we hear is this passage in 4.12, that there is no other name by which men can be saved. And what we do is we tend to think saved means what happens to you after you die. But in the context of Acts chapter 4 and in Acts chapter 3, what Peter is categorically talking about has nothing to do with what happens after you die. But Peter is saying salvation, restoration, wholeness for you right now in the moment in which you live. He says to a man who can't walk, get up, my friend. Salvation today, wholeness today. It happens through one name and one name alone, through the name of Jesus. One of my favorite writers is a man named Eckhard Schnabel. He, he is a writer and a theologian who spends most of his time talking about mission. And in his massive two-volume tomb where he talks about uh, the power of these earliest disciples, he has this to say, that the conviction that Jesus Christ constitutes the only chance for salvation for every human being, no matter where he or she lives, it is the basis and driving force for Christian mission. The disciples were convinced that the death and resurrection of Jesus, the promised Messiah, had inaugurated the messianic era of salvation. That life was possible through one name and one name alone, through the name of Jesus. Now I want to stop for a moment again because I recognize that for those of us living in post-Christian America, for those of us with Western sensibilities, for some of us who even consider ourselves Christians, when we hear words like that, they make us cringe a little bit because it sounds so incredibly exclusive that there's only one name and the name is Jesus. If you want to live well, if you want to be whole, if you want to have joy and life, then it comes only through Jesus. And that seems just so incredibly exclusive to us. We live in a world where the dominant phrase of our day, if I can just popularize it, is essentially, you do you. You believe what you want to believe, 
and I believe what I want to believe. As, as long as I don't infringe upon your rights, then you're free to live how you see fit. The ultimate arbiter of truth is, well, you for your life and me for my life. And the only exclusive position in our culture is that there is no exclusive position. We live in a world so much like the earliest apostles, where you could believe in any God you want, where you could pursue wholeness in any fashion that you wanted to, whether it was going to the temple of one of the gods in ancient Rome, or going to the mall and drowning yourself, or Amazon and drowning yourself in the endless pursuit of materialism. We live in a world that essentially says, you can find joy however you see fit. And so when we hear this phrase, there is no other name by which salvation can come, by which rescue can come than by the name of Jesus. Friends, it strikes us a little bit odd. But the earliest followers of Jesus were committed to this movement, and so should we. And I understand for some of you who are watching today, who are watching online or on television, and I'm so glad that you are this morning. For some of you, what you have heard are far too many TV preachers who say the name of Jesus. There was a guy in my last church or in my last hometown, where every time he said the word Jesus, he said it like that, Jesus. And any time he said the word Jesus, he went on to condemn people and to use the name as a power play to make people feel guilty and to make them feel less than, to break them down and tell them how bad and wicked and awful they are. I get it. There are far too many people who use the name of Jesus to bring wealth into their own pockets. There are far too many people who use the name of Jesus to bring themselves political power. But the fact of the matter is, for those of us who are asking the question, how do we continue to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ in this city? What we have to do is never forget that those earliest disciples were not afraid to say those words that salvation and rescue and life and joy can come through one name and one name alone, and it is Jesus. And for them, and I pray for us, that telling others about Jesus, it was not about power or influence or authority, but for the earliest disciples, telling others about Jesus, friends, it was an invitation into a new way of existence where your eyes can be opened, where your heart can be enlarged, and you can see that the goodness of God is absolutely all around you. Peter says to the religious leaders, how have I done what I've done? Well, it's because of the name of Jesus. And I wonder, are we willing to go and share that name out in our city? Because if we are going to have a future, then we must never, ever back up on the name of Jesus. You know, I actually want to back up just a little bit further. 
Because before the disciples, before Peter and John ended up in this moment with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees or the Sadducees and the scribes, there was actually one more interaction that happened. It's the thing that led them to get to this moment in the first place. If you go back and read in Acts chapter 3, there comes this moment where Peter and John, they were going to the temple in the morning because they were going to go and worship. And Luke tells us that they walked past this gate called the Beautiful Gate. It was inside. It was just in between the court of the Jews and the court of the Gentiles. And every single day at this beautiful gate, Luke tells us that there was a man who was put there early on in the morning by his friends and his family. He was a man, as I said earlier, who was lame since his birth. And he sat at the beautiful gate to his fellow Jews every single day as they walked into the temple courts and he asked them, begged them for some money so that he could have an existence at all. And Luke tells us that one day, Peter and John, they're walking in and they're passing the beautiful gate and they see this man sitting at the gate. And I love what Luke says to us. It says, he says that Peter and John, they looked hard at the man. And then they looked at this man, they stared hard at him and they looked and they said, man, look at us. <laughs> and the man, Luke says, looks up at them expecting that, he will, that they will give him something. And Peter, John, they look at this man who couldn't walk from the time of his birth, and they say to him, I don't have any money, but I will give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk, my friend. And the man rises to his feet, and the people are astonished. And that's what launches this entire story. That's what launches this provocative moment when Peter says, There is no name under heaven or on earth by which men can be rescued. And it begins by walking through a gate. And Peter and John looking hard at the man. You know, friends, I hope we will never forget that all transformation, that absolutely all transformation in our lives begins with one simple fact. Those two disciples, they looked hard, the story says, at this crippled man. They looked in his eyes. Imagine the moment. Imagine the intensity when they say to him, I don't have any money, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up. And it all began by these two looking hard at the beggar. And I cannot help but remember something. That all transformation begins by seeing and being seen. That all transformation in our lives begins by having our eyes open so that we might see. And what Peter did when he looked at this beggar is that he stared him in the face and he recognized something. That he wasn't just looking at a loser. He wasn't just looking at a man who sat there every single day, day after day, doing the same thing. No, Peter and John, they looked hard 
at this man because when they did, as Jesus taught them to, what they would have understood is that they are looking in the eyes of someone else who was created in the divine image. It is so incredibly important that Luke doesn't say they saw him outside on the peripheral of their eyesight. It doesn't say that he, they walked past him quickly in a hurry to get to worship. It says that they were walking by and they stared hard at this man. Because when you encounter another human being, you will recognize that they are worthy of the name of Jesus, just like you are. And as He has given us grace, so we give grace to others. All transformation begins by seeing and being seen. And I have to tell you, I think that's part of the problem in our world. That's part of the problem of the culture in which we live, that we are now living in this moment where we fail to see, where we fail to take the time to look hard at people with whom we disagree, that we are willing to walk by on the periphery to avoid those that we don't consider worthy of our time. And in the midst of doing so, we never have an encounter where we can look hard at another human being that might be different than us. And this is true on a political spectrum, where we now are only engaging with people who believe like us and act like us and think like us. And you never have a conversation with someone who is different than you. And you will never see or be seen, and you are robbing yourself of an opportunity to encounter someone and share the love of Jesus Christ. We live in a world, friends, where we are so unwilling to see another human being. Something happens when you look a person in the eyes, when you engage with them on this deep, deep level and it transforms you and I look at the racial situation that is taking place in our country and I see the vitriol and the anger and the hate that is happening absolutely all around us and I have my white brothers and sisters saying that I'm not a racist and I don't know anything about race and I have my black brothers and sisters who are crying out that they are so tired and so exhausted from reading one tragedy after another. And then I watch as we walk around the periphery of each other. And we might catch glances out of our sides. But if we want transformation to happen, we have to understand that it begins by looking hard at each other. It begins by understanding that we have to look hard at each other and engage in difficult conversations with the understanding that the only thing, the only thing that can get us where we need to be is the name of Jesus. You see, friends, we live in a world where we are so unwilling to look hard at each other. 
And one of the fundamental characteristics of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is that we understand we must walk those hard roads. We must engage in those difficult conversations because when we do, not only will we see another human being for what they are, but even more importantly than that, it gives us an opportunity to look them in the eyes and to say, in the name of Jesus, I love you. In the name of Jesus, I am here for you. Just earlier this week, I was walking into my office. And it was about 7 o'clock in the morning. I usually get here earlier than anyone else does. And I walk past, uh, get out of my car, and I'm walking towards the front door, and I see a man sitting there on a bench. And he's got his head covered and his head down. And my first impulse was just keep walking. Keep him in the periphery. Just keep on going. But then I remembered this story in Acts. And I remembered the power of the name of Jesus. And so I stopped and I said, friend, how are you? He raised his head, I'm not good. And I said, come inside. And it was just me and him. And he didn't look like me. And he didn't talk like me. And he didn't act like me. And I said, do you want some coffee? I haven't had any for days. Do you want a donut? I haven't had food in 48 hours. Do you want to come sit down in my office? And we made our way back and we sat down. And I began to talk and he began to tell me his story about where he came from and how he had gotten here. And he admitted to me, Will, I'm on drugs. I'm taking pills. And I'm broken. And I'm sad. And I just want to go home. And it was in that moment when I thought what I wouldn't give to be like Peter and to lay my hands on my brother and to say to him in the name of Jesus Christ, be healed. But I don't have that gift. But I do have Jesus. And so I looked at my friend and I did lay my hand on him. And I said to him, in the name of Jesus, I want you to know you're loved. And I'm going to help you get where you need to go. And over the course of an entire day, I watched as men and women of this church gathered around this man and they loved on this man. And we set him going home where he needed to be. Because there's power in the name of Jesus. Of Jesus. And so I wonder, as we go throughout the course of this week, and you're watching online or on television from the comfort of your own home, where you are surrounded by people probably like you, and today, I want to ask you, are you willing to see another human being? Someone of a different color, Someone of a different class. Someone of a different political persuasion. And not just to see them from the corner of your eye, but in the name of Jesus. This week, 
Will you be willing, like Peter, like John, to look hard at another human being and to share with them the good news that Jesus loves them too? The future of the church is, in fact, going back to the beginning. Loving God and loving others. And that is really good news. Let's take a moment now. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for this morning, for the opportunity to be in the comfort of our own homes and just to worship you, Lord. Today, God, help us to know that there is one name by which men can be rescued. Rescue for eternity, yes, but in this story and on this day, rescue for now. So God, for my brothers and sisters who are watching and their lives are broken, help them to know salvation is here through your Son. And for those of us who are watching and we already call on this powerful and mighty name of Jesus, Lord, help us to not just be content to keep this name for ourselves, but to be like those early disciples, Peter and John. Lord, help us to walk the streets, to go about our lives, to walk the halls of our office, to encounter the other, and to announce the good news that Jesus loves them too. Lord, give us the audacity to believe that this is true and then to go out and share it with the world. Lord, this is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.